Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition, to win at work, drive your career forwards, and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Monroe, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people, and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. So hello everybody and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. So with me today is James Owen, who is Global CFO of Cantar Profiles. He's also recently been nominated in the Digital Finance Awards for Finance Leader of the Year, large company. And, you know, there's a, there's a list of accreditations and awards and um, things on this list, but he's also an NED um, with SEMA, so working with them as well. So welcome, James. Lovely to have you on the show. Uh, thank you very much, Hannah. You're very generous with your introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I look through you. There's a few, probably a few other things we can pull out, but it's. Um, I think it's great that you've kind of got that experience, both as an acting CFO, but obviously your work with SEMA as well. Um, and obviously, somebody's recognising it if you've been um, <laughs> uh, nominated for the for the Digital Finance Awards by Gen CFO. And if you know, for all of our listeners, just um, definitely check it out because we've also uh, been nominated as well for social media of the year as well so you know it's it's a great awards and you know I think we're all got our fingers crossed both uh, both us and James winning to be very fair so um so um so James tell us a little bit about your work with um with SEMA so I've been on the global board of SEMA uh, about six years now so I uh, qualified as SEMA back in the day uh, a really passionate uh, value creator and management accountant uh, in my heart um so, but but SEMA, what was particularly interesting for me about uh, the opportunity to join the board of SEMA? In fact, let me let me back up one second. The governance of SEMA works similar to a member of parliament situation. So there is the global council. The council represent the members uh, of SEMA around the world. So there is one elected official for each constituency, for want of a better phrase. And I was the I became the elected official for London and uh, and north of the Thames. So I represent about twenty five thousand qualified SEMA members on the SEMA board. Um, so that is a fascinating topic in itself, is the whole election process. But putting that aside, uh, I joined the board six years ago, and my 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 reason for being there is uh, I'm exceedingly interested in the future of our profession. So uh, I. You get some individuals who are there to specifically talk about the technical accounting or how members in practice work, etc. And all those are very valid arguments, but I'm interested in the future of the profession. How do we remain relevant um, in a world that's conver- converging around data? So yeah, that's what I've been doing for the last six years. Uh, I've been helping to uh, transform the syllabus, make it evergreen, take it online. Uh, that helps us be somewhat COVID um, and absorb the pressure of that. So we, we, we perform relatively well. And yeah, it's, it's just been a fascinating journey as well. It's, it, I think it's just the feather in the cap as well. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think um, a bit like you, there's 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 um there's a lot of talk about the skills needed, but actually it's 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 hard to keep an eye and almost anticipate, isn't it, what the next generation of finance no not just finance leaders but the up-and-coming finance team needs to have um and you know for those that haven't yet listened to um the podcast we've just done with ash noah so there's there's almost a bit of an insight into the different roles and responsibilities um and the the t and the pie-shaped individuals which um yeah if you don't know what one of those is definitely worth checking it out because that's um yeah it is we're not talking about cakes and and, um, and drinks there there is um, there is a bit of logic that sits behind it but so because what do you see as the future of let's talk about the CFO role first of all like mm-hmm. how have you seen it change and what do you think that's going to look like in say the next couple of years I, th- I think we have started to see the the, the t-shirt concepts come come through and uh, even in the CFO roles if you think back to the, the the old the you know only a decade ago maybe two two decades ago the the finance leadership were primarily technical accountants and and how that's changed over time is that that role is now expected to be a business person with a finance background and that is hugely transformative um uh as well as that though these these are expected to be charismatic leaders and visible people in the in an organization now so they don't just lead the finance um function they they lead the company how how i think there's the skills and, and the role has changed it's it's much more of a dynamic uh value creation role uh, as opposed to the more historic keeping true keeping legal <laughs> adding the numbers up at month end it's just not that role anymore it's not a bookkeeping role and how i think it's merging over time and again that's what took me to the SEMA role is the world of data science, the world of management of management consultancy, uh, the world of the MBA, emerging with the management accountancy space uh, for the you know for the right to be the person that gives the business advice and steers them in the right direction. That is that is the space that we the finance leader now is in and and should has a right to own as well. Yeah, because there is a piece in that, isn't there, about if finance doesn't step up, then somebody will fill that gap. And then the, the question is, is what's going to happen to the, the finance role in itself? And how, I guess, from conversations that you're having with other CFOs and, you know, and in your role um, on the board, how far away are we from actually being where we need to be? <laughs> Good question. I think, <laughs> I think people, we're not far, we're not far away from it. One of the key things holding us back at the moment is data, is data, you know, as in clean data and organized appropriately, but also the, the reporting and the systems to support making live decisions in a dashboard type world. You know, proper, think about the tech world, like A-B testing, that kind of level of decision making is where we need to be. And we're still quite a distance away in a lot of large organizations, certainly. Um we're still a little bit more general ledger focused month end. Let's look over the last 30 days and make a forward projection based decision on the back of that rather than here's what's happened in the last 10 minutes. How do we course correct? So I think we want to be there. I think mentally we're there, uh, but we don't yet have all the tools in our, in our kit. 
Yeah, I, I would agree there. And I think it's one of the interesting things I always find is finance tends to be at the last in the line when it comes to technology investment. Unfortunately, like sales and marketing get all of this amazing tech. And um, at some point, somebody goes, well, we need better reporting on all of this great data that we're gathering and how do we connect the dots? So it is an interesting piece. I I don't know about you, but I, I do feel like COVID's changing that though. The importance of the finance team and their ability to to serve information to the wider organization, I feel like it's it's becoming more important to businesses and they're recognizing it, as it were. I, I, I really feel for those that still don't have cloud-based accounting solutions. Because I, I, you know, I really don't know how that's how that's worked. We've got um I can't I, you know, right right here, right now, there is a moment in time where there's still lockdowns around the world as a consequence of the pandemic. And there's a particular one in a particular market where just the local country operates in a certain way that's still quite analog. Uh, they're going through a, a lockdown at the moment, and there's a lot of account, physical ca- accounting transactions that cannot happen right now because they're paper based. Um, so yeah, there there are certain markets where we are definitely behind the curve on this cloud path, but there are others where we're miles ahead. Yeah. Um, so it's encouraging. We're walking the right path, but it's taking time. Yeah, I was speaking, I'm trying to remember who I was talking to, um, I think, um, it, but it was about um, how COVID has changed um, some finance teams, because there was a point where finance team were considered key workers, because somebody needed to come in, get the invoices and process them physically through the system, which which is crazy, isn't it? In this day and age, with all of the technology that we have around OCR and scanning and emailing that, you know, we're still some, or you know, some finance teams are still really paper based. It's 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 astonishing. It really is astonishing. Um, we, we uh, my wife and I, technically had a very dubious claim to being a coworker during <laughs> the, the first lockdown or two, and we just said, look, we we're people of integrity. We cannot, irrespective of whether or not you tick that box, we are not the people that this was intended for. So under no circumstances are we walking walking that road. It's, you know, yeah, we're not co-workers. Uh, we're not, we're not key workers. We're not co-workers. <laughs> That's it. It's, it's always a challenge. So, so going back to, we talked a little bit about that CFO role, turning into that real business advisor, strategic, um, you know, almost that, that part, part, really, truly part of the C-suite and partner to the CEO. Um, but you mentioned obviously data and systems holding back. Is there anything else that you feel like is holding CFOs back from being able to step into that role, whether it's um, uh, self-delivered, you know, self uh, hold, yeah. individuals holding themselves back, or whether you think it's something in the environment that they're working. An interesting space to explore is those those that believe they require permission versus those that seek forgiveness. I, I think I think that's an issue that's inherently embedded in the DNA of fi- finance people. This this clash of um, is it okay for me to say this? You know, is it my space? Is it is it my place even, or is it is technically my place to whisper this in the ear of someone whose space it is, uh, who has the authority to say this out loud? That is something that has to be wrestled to the ground and eradicated over time because we do have permission, we absolutely do. Um, but I think of 
until we have truly ad- addressed that, and it is a bit of an elephant in the room, um, we are not going to be ready for that moment. This this is our this is our moment, and I don't want to recruit finance people now on this podcast, but it, it truly is our chance. The, it's an open goal. The world has come floating toward us. The future is here. Data is now needed. Um, the, and I, I keep I said this in my in my SEMA space. The accountant in the traditional sense is going to be gone in the next 30 years. Uh, the, the production of accounts, the following accounting standards, et cetera, is at the end of the day, a formulaic way of applying a body of knowledge that, you know, machine learning will eat that for breakfast. So that we have to pivot towards the value creation space. And that requires us to put our chest out a little bit, be a little bit braver um, and use our brain and, 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 and offer advice on the back of that with clear recommendations. Yeah, and I think that's it, isn't it? And it's it's a really interesting point you made about being brave and willing to step out of your comfort zone because there is a there is I think a lot of people go into you know go into finance because they like logic and they like certainty and they like being really clear on the numbers. But actually, that you know being able to say, well, if this happens, I think this is going to happen, and if this happens, we need to do this. And, you know, working with these unknowns and these variables and this volatile environment, you know, who would have predicted a pandemic followed by a war, a global war followed by, um, you know, God knows how many trade sanctions and everything else that's going, you know, and maybe another pandemic on its way, you never know. Um, but, uh, you know, everything that's going through, it, it's, you wouldn't predict it and and being able to to manage that and cope with that, that's a whole different skill set in itself, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's similar, isn't it? In terms of the, you know, the mindset shift required from when you're, as you're going up through organizations and you switch from being a transactor, an executor, a brilliant technician to all of a sudden being a manager of people that do that, it's a totally different skill set. And you have, to, you have to learn to let go. You have to learn to... Uh, acquire new skills. I think it's exactly the same in this space. You have to learn to transition from being someone who basically looks at things after the event and occasionally says, well, if you follow that trend line, you might end up here to, hey guys, here's this new idea. How about we, you know, we think of this and we really pursue it, take it apart, maybe just maybe have a leap of faith. I think it could do this. That that is a there's a leap we're going to have to make. And I really like that because, you know, traditionally finance is seen as the person that says no, right? In in a lot of organizations, they are the ones that hold the purse strings and they're very, you know, they're seen as reluctant to let it go. Um, and do you think that needs to change in terms of how, how, how finance should be seen within that process of allocating budget and monitoring it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, I'm I'm not an allocation guy. I'm not a cost control guy. It's one of the tenets of the finance ecosystem I put in place. Is rather than the the here's the request for a specific amount of resource. The answer is no. I flip that on the head and I make sure everyone believes the real way of answering that is okay. If that's the ask, how can we make that happen? What needs to be true in order to unlock that? Um, Yes, we absolutely should challenge whether or not that's the right ask in the first place. But if this is the objective, how can we get there? What what needs to happen? 
So yeah, I entirely endorse that. That's, but that, that's what I think is this concept of being a business person with a finance background is thinking like exactly like that. Yeah, and I love that that piece about how do we make it happen. So that there's a good question, isn't there? Is it the right ask? Yeah, tell me why you need this. Let me have enough knowledge and the skills to understand what you're asking for and why you're asking for it. But like you said, how can I find a way to make it happen versus you need to prove to me that I can unlock this purse string, uh, which is a is a whole different shift. And in you know, I am seeing I I am seeing it in a couple of places, but it, it's not common across the board. I would say it, it's it's not. But that's that shows to, to me buy into the project. Um, you know, it's, it's like I am now on board. I'm actively looking to champion what you're trying to achieve here. How can we think of it differently? Um, so anything beyond that is just a glorified gatekeeper. You know, you're not you're not interested in what they're saying, really. You're just following a rule book. And again, I think that's that's the world that's going to be commoditized and replaced, automated. There's no future in it. No, absolutely. So you talked about making that change internally, and it's one of the one of the frameworks. So I'm going to ask you about your other ones in a second. What other changes you made? But how did you implement that? How did you change that mindset within your team? I'm quite transparent from the day I joined an organisation. So I, I, I'm one of those guys that have, tra- you know, moved around a fair bit, whether it's companies, industries, etc. I've not really been in any company a long period of time. So. That gives you an opportunity every time you come into a new organization or a new team to say, right from the get-go, almost like a speed dating thing, right? Here's what I stand for. Here's who I am in my heart. How do you work? And is there, what common ground do we have? What what differences do we need to explore? So that uh, it gives me an opportunity from day one is to say, these are the things that matter to me. And just perhaps more importantly as well, for me to be a success, for me to work, this isn't what needs to be true. Um, so that's where I, I get out. From, I, I made a side note when I joined Kantar about a year and a half ago, just one page of saying, look, these are, these are the 10 things that matter to me. And one of which is transparency. Uh, so I think there is a deeply embedded thing within <clears throat> an awful lot of organizations about sandbagging money or managing expectations, whatever you want to call it. They hold back. They, they're f- fearful of... Uh, sharing two bullish numbers because they think they're going to get hit over the head or people do silly things like get to the end of the year and they inefficiently spend money because they think they're going to lose the budget next year if they don't. All these stupid behaviors that have developed over time. I stripped that all out. I just outlawed from day one. And uh, the way I kind of try and set up that ecosystem is if everybody gives me true transparent realism, We'll then get to a number at the, at, the, at the consolidated level that makes sense. And then we can make more informed decisions, whether it's investments, divestments, et cetera, et cetera, growth strategies. It doesn't mean we're then necessarily going to make that our target. Um, you know, we can still ahead, give ourselves an 80 20 chance, but that only works if everybody's pulling in the same direction. Uh, and, and I think over time, you build up trust with the organization if you do not then use that to beat them with you know it then becomes quite self-fulfilling yeah no that's a really good um idea because especially in a lot of organizations there is a bit of um 
prettying up of numbers as it goes up the chain, isn't there, that happens, which makes it really hard to be an effect, you know, to make good decisions once you get the sort of the the ultra sanitized version of events that comes through. It adds no value. You know, you can't you can't make an informed decision as a CFO if you if you're looking at rubbish data. It's rubbish in, rubbish out, isn't it? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. You're, you're preaching to the converted here, James, but I, I bet there's a few listening to this that are going, yeah, I, I sympathize, you know, I, I, I've seen that, I felt it. Um, and it's great to hear how you've addressed it. So, so what other key things do you need to, do you say that you need to have in place to make you a success as a CFO? What else is important to you? Uh, there are more values than anything, but um, customer centricity is another one. So th- this this goes way back to my days in, in banking and a, a particular mentor of mine. But it, I you have to think through the lens of the recipient of whatever you're doing, and it, even that goes down to sending out an Excel report. Quite frankly, this guy drilled it into me that every single every single tab should have the print area correctly done with the right print setup so that it, when it prints all on the right sheet, number of sheets, every cell, every tab should be in the top left-hand corner uh, ready. Do you know what I mean? It's just easy to pick up and run with from the very... And it's the silly little things like that that really matter, really, really matter. So try and second-guess what questions are going to be given in advance. You've already got an answer. Lead with a recommendation, that not a problem. Um I know I'm rambling on, but brevity is one of my, <laughs> my 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 non-negotiables. If you can communicate something in five words instead of 50, please do that. Because also, by the way, if you can't explain it succinctly, you probably don't understand it as well as you think you do. No, I think that's a good point. Though I will say 50 words is definitely better than five on this podcast. So Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's fair enough. Although we can probably cover a lot more topics in uh, five <laughs> Maybe I need to change some of the values uh, when I'm interviewing. But um, and, and it's, I like your point about customer centricity and those small things about how you serve data. And I and I think that's a really interesting point. I think finance tends to give, like you say, I think there is a bit about handing it to them in a way that they can immediately use. But I also think there's a bit, isn't there, about enabling the organisation to to use that data and to and look at it in a, in different ways rather than the format that you've given it to them in. Because, you know, if they want to explore it, have you given them the understanding of where those numbers come from and how, how easy it is to drill and understand that as well? Yeah, it, well, it's, it's setting up your stakeholder for success as well and guiding them in, in, the, in the right direction. Um, yeah, I, I also think that the, deep down, there's something about pride, pride in your work. So I find I find it utterly fascinating how many calls I've been on in the last two years, where I've been opposite someone not saying not you obviously but opposite someone who's basically not clearly not ironed a shirt in two years. Like, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, um, but take pride in yourself. You wouldn't you wouldn't turn up to the workplace like that. So why why would you do it when you're clearly going to be on camera? <laughs> I just can't, I can't get my head around that at all. But I think that concept of pride comes across in different ways, doesn't it? So if we go back um, to the pride in the information you're presenting, have you thoroughly understood it? Have you thoroughly presented it in a way that that 
gives the you know the the viewer the piece that they want. And we are talking when you say customer centricity, I'm assuming you're talking about the business as a whole as well as obviously externals to your. To, is that how yeah, you mean I, I, by absolute, customer? I, absolutely, because customer is whoever you're providing service for. It, uh, in fact, with finance, it very rarely is a client in in the traditional sense. But uh, it, it, it's all about who. I I don't want finance to be just a, a part of a machine. I want finance to be like a competitive advantage. So how do we serve the business in the best possible way? And also, therefore, those people become shining ambassadors of finance. And it's 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 lots of little sub subtle bits along the way that um, I think inspire. Well, it certainly inspire confidence, but possibly also inspire a little bit of uh, impressive. Um, and, and you know what? You can be a, it can be a strong recruitment tool as well, because everyone will you can just see their eyes light up when they're talking about your team. That's that must be an incredible buzz. And so let's move on to the concept of team, because we talk very much about how you see the CFO role um, and certainly what you, how you set yourself up for success. But what do you look for in a, in a team? And has there been any interesting changes that you've made to your team at Cantile Profiles? Uh, I, I require positivity. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know if that counts as one of my values or not, but I, can't, I just think life's too short at the end of the day. One, I, I require pride in our product, our organization, our team, whatever it may be. And if you haven't gotten that, you haven't got passion. And why are you here at the end of the day? I, I, I'm not interested in people that just want to pick up a paycheck. I'm, I want to build something. Um, and hopefully people want to go on that journey with me. So yeah, absolute positivity. Leave the neg. doesn't mean you can't talk about yeah, the bad things going on in your personal life. But it, it's more about at least show up 90% of the time up for it, energized. Um, maybe that goes back to my football days. I'm not sure. <laughs> but th- that's the key thing. I think respect uh, among amongst the teams are absolutely critical. Everyone's viewpoint has the right to be heard. Uh, not everyone's going to be correct. That's an imposs- impossibility. Um but I think uh, overall, you've got to build up trust in the team. Uh, I'm I'm one of these guys who starts at a place of you have my credibility and trust from day one. Um, takes a lot to lose my my trust and credibility, um, but it's probably a character fail on, on my behalf that once once that's been breached, it's trickier to get me get me back. My wife says I'm a I'm a sulker rather than a volatile person. (laughs) (laughs) Your spouses all often tell you things that you need to hear to be very fair. (laughs) Brutal truth, right? So, but that probably means more often than not, I'm a very calm person. uh, That's uh, pretty easy to get along with. But I I think staying connected is so important to to a team, especially in in the world we're in today. Uh, The last decade, I've mainly spent in global roles. Um, and that's tricky, you know, that, that is really tricky, especially with the time zone differences, somebody somewhere is nearly always going to be really put out or inconvenienced. And it's trying to be respectful to that, even if it just means that you share the burden of who's, who's got the horrible slot month to month or week to week, whatever it may be. 
I think, that, and even more so, as it's only fair that I take my fair share of that pain sometimes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because the the global piece is an interesting one. So, are there any other learnings that you've picked up over the years in terms of managing a, a global team of different cultures of different individuals? Good question. Um, so at the moment, my role spans 22 different markets. Um, it's There's benefits. There's certainly benefits of being in different time zones. Uh, so for example, I can brief, before I log off in an evening, I can brief something to um, the APAC team and I wake up and it's ready. Um, that's, <laughs> that's, quite that's, nice. awesome. that's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. That, that's like instantaneous feedback. Um but of course, it works the opposite way with the with with, with the Americas. Um, I I think it's just been trying to establish ground rules whereby it's okay to communicate on text or Teams or whatever with the people that you're the most removed from. So I I don't like if I can avoid it using written comms um, as much as possible because I just think it can be misread. Uh, especially if it's been done in a, either haste or a temper, uh, you know, getting the right words isn't always easy. However, that's just more practical in in certain time zones. Like me, myself and my colleague in in Australia, it's pretty much the only way we communicate on a regular basis. So again, building up that trust, learning how you how you talk to one another, what's acceptable, building the ground rules such that. It is okay just to send a one sentence with no flirting at the start of the end about <laughs> no, how is you how is your weekend? Why did your car break down? You know, all these things are relevant and it's great for building the human connection, but sometimes it's just easier to communicate a little bit more bluntly as long as it's understood that that's fine. Yeah, and I guess as long as you've got the opportunity to do that softer connection piece in at some point and in some way exactly you've got to you've got to make space for that and you've got to develop those relationships um but i'm I'm one of the many people in the world that have joined a role in the covid era so i i've presently got six direct reports and i've actually only met three of them uh of which one was only last week um a year and a half (laughs) into our relationship Wow. Um, so this is all we all we know in a way. So you've you've got to you've got to work it out, haven't you? You've... Yeah. No, that's it. I, I think that's the interesting thing about COVID is it's it's opened up opportunities. You know, there are obviously a huge amount of bad things, but there are some interesting and I think sometimes positive elements that have come out of COVID. You know, and like you say, um, the way that we work and the the focus on not having to be there in person and the flexibility that that brings is is really interesting and I think it's going to make us all more productive longer term in, in my personal opinion. Um, I I don't know about you. I just remember distinctly back to that poor guy in the, on the BBC uh, news about three years ago when his child was crawling in the background and the you know the the, the mother was on on hands and knees like trying to claw him out in the background. It was incredibly embarrassing for the, for that guy and it went hugely viral at the time and we all thought that'll never happen to us and how, how normalized <laughs> that's become now and actually that's that's lovely it's really it's really nice that we've seen the human side of people a lot more frequently um and whether that's 
the dog barking or <laughs> someone having to run after a child or someone having to turn the camera off for a second to accept a parcel at the door. You know, we've it has opened up a bit of a window to people behind the mask of work, and I, re- I really, I really value that. I, I'm I'm on board with that. Actually, to be very fair, I feel like I, I feel like I know people in their own environment, and that's sometimes very different to who they bring to work um, mm-hmm. when they're in the office. And you get it, like you said, you get to see a different side of people. Um, and underst- I think understanding is the bit that you gain by sometimes having that window into their home lives. So it is uh, really really interesting. It's, it's context. It's context for who they are, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, uh, that's it. just going back to your, your question a second ago. Sorry, is um, that's one of the things I find particularly helpful in this world and with the global teams is being really clear about what's the ground rules for you as a person. Um, so, f- to the best of my ability, I've, I've got two young children. We had children l- a little bit later in life, and you know, I want to be the person that does the school run on the morning as much as I possibly can. So I block that out. That's almost sacrosanct. Is that time? But but we've managed to make it work, and it's the same with my guys in uh, in in Sydney, in Australia. The, uh, he's he tends to want to do the his his evening is obviously when I come online. But there's a certain time when he's doing school run or he's doing after school club, etc. We just we just work around it. And that's fine. Yeah, it's it's about being clear, isn't it? Like you say, where are your boundaries? Having those conversations up front, knowing what you can and can't do what is and isn't acceptable on both sides. But also, I think, again, one of the nice things about COVID is that flexibility conversation about it is okay to work an hour before, pop out to do the school run, and then come back in and work late. You know, you couldn't do that if you're in an office five days a week. So, yeah. Possibly even more so when you're in in a a C-suite role as well. I think it's incredibly important to role model the stuff because people look at you. You don't don't realise it, but you are casting a shadow in the organisation. So if you're going out of your way to still have a family life or, you know, whatever your personal circumstances may be, people will really value that and they'll see that as permission for them to also protect their own lives. And just from a mental health and well-being perspective, I think that's really, really great for an organisation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, that again, it's another um, piece around what does a good CFO look like is that role modelling to finance who you want finance to be so so i tell you what let, let's explore that a little bit more so any, but before we do anything on anything more on global like any other challenges that you came across when you first started to get into the the joys of managing a, a global um team i think just how it, it depends if you're the the technical accountant or the commercial finance person or an fpna person but i'm the la- the middle one. I'm a commercial finance guy. I've always had to surround myself with a brilliant technical uh, technician uh, a- along the way, like a great FC or whatever. I think even more so in a global role. You you might be from the United Kingdom. You might know uh, the UK gap inside out. You might know Europe. You're certainly not going to know how China works. Um, so just building your network of trusted advisors um, and, and knowing who you're going to talk to at any moment in time, whether it's statutory, legal, risk, whatever whatever it may be, HR, you just need to have that network in place and be comfortable trusting them. And, and admitting, by the way, that you are not the expert. You cannot be the expert in everything. That's what the T-shaped um, concept was with, with, with Ash. It was, 
you can't you, you need an underlying and you know understanding of everything but specialism is singular to a lot of people no, and I think that's really good. And there was an interesting phrasing that you just use is that I always, I surround myself with, te- you know, I always have like a, a technical person in my team that is that person for me. What else do you do to set like your team up so that you can be that true commercial finance strategic CFO? I think it's, well, first of all, I need that system in place that we talk, talked about earlier on. I, I can't really operate without, what is effectively SNOP, sales and operational planning? You know, that's the way I work. It doesn't doesn't matter what industry you're in. It the concept applies everywhere. It's a consensus based forecast, which everyone touches and owns jointly. So it's that personal accountability piece. I think other than that, the thing that I certainly need, and I I think most teams probably would do, is a team that actually is complementary to each other. So I am totally against hiring clones of me because we wouldn't know anything else uh, you know there's just pure group thing so i try my best to uh surround myself with a team an internal team anyway of people that have totally different skills to me totally different views to me and you are going to get that in a global role um even more so because of the cultural differences and the local markets and, I, and we talked about cultural, but did you find, that, were there any interesting observations about obviously coming from a UK background and then working with APAC in Europe? Did you notice there were some real cultural challenges when you first started to work with them or did was it all pretty much plain sailing from the beginning? I'd, I'd say no. M- most of my global roles, when I've got individuals around the world in different markets, they're mainly quite westernized in terms of the from a business perspective so it might on paper it's local and the end clients are local um so there is the the differences are real but nonetheless the the way you operate are relatively similar the 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 the, the biggest difference i've ever seen culturally uh was when i did my mba at cranfield back in the day on the very first day there everyone had literally just got off a plane basically that's when I saw true cultural differences because it wasn't there wasn't a filter of you know ten years of p and g in irrespective of where you are in the world uh and it I think there was a team bonding exercise we did uh on the first day might be the second day where you were blindfolded and you had a a, a box of like shapes in front of you and you had to articulate what it is you think you've got in your hand, and others had to guess and you know it was like a competition. And I just remember like the, the British guys picked up what was effectively a triangle and they were saying how it's, um, you know, it's an arrowhead and it look, could be medieval. It's a little bit longer. You're thinking like Robin Hood. And there was almost like telling a story with what they were, they had in their hands. And there was a particular guy from uh, India. I remember vividly, he's such a smart guy. Uh, but he was, a, he was, he was talking about, how it's a you know quadrilateral triangle, it's ninety degree angles, and he just he had the exact same shape in his hand, but he, the way he'd been brought up meant he he saw it and he described it in a completely different way. And I thought this is cultural difference right here, what I'm I'm seeing in front of me. Oh yeah, and it's interesting how much of that is cultural and how much is that is up bringing from a you know from a family isn't it there's that whole nature versus um nature plus all of 
you know, there's other things. So yeah, super interesting. I bet that was a great learning experience across the board. It, 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 it was. It, that just from the very first minute, I thought, okay, yeah, I've not seen cultural difference before. Time to time to dial into this. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and I think even within the UK, there can be quite big cultural differences depending on where people have come from, their schooling background, the end, you know, you've obviously worked across lots of different industries, but you can, you can see those that have only worked in one and how they approach things versus those that have worked across multiple. So it is, it is really interesting. Diversity in all its forms is, is, is so important, I think, to a well-rounded um, finance team. So, we, we we get we, we get that at Cantor. There's an awful lot of people that have been in the market research space, or even Cantor, by the way, 10 to, 10 to 20 years. And then we've got a whole bunch of people that have just joined in the last two years since we, um, you know, delisted from WPP. And it's, it is fascinating seeing how those two different groups think differently and, and how they approach uh, the, just this, the very same problem. They, they've got a very different uh, like take on every issue, basically. Yeah, because there there is um, there's always a we do it like this because and if you can get rid of that that is, for me is one of the most powerful tools in change you know that whole challenge everything mentality that you need to really deliver on transformation but that's hard if you've been somewhere for a long while because you don't you kind of don't want to accept that you've done it in a way that isn't perhaps the most productive for the last ten years so um, it is interesting. So, so coming on to your team then. So you're very much a future focused guy in terms of the skill set that you feel like, you know, you, you and where finance is going. So what do you see as the critical changes that finance leaders need to make in terms of educating and building their teams in order for us to meet the future demands of the business? What do you, what, what are your thoughts? I think first and foremost, we need to be more personal more human and more connected um so we, we we need to know what is going on and i think that is one of the, the biggest failings of the last two years is we miss the office chat you know the the osmosis of knowledge you get just by hearing the sales guy say say that or oh, this little side conversation here that you're you can immediately chip in and help and it saves them three days of pain so i i think being still really plugged into what's actually going on in the business such that the numbers on a piece of paper come alive and you get it in, in, in your heart i think that's that's really really important for a, a finance team certainly for them to be effective i think they need to be problem solving um and solution led and uh, act, ultimately action orientated in the way they think about uh, any any issue that comes across their their, their bow and again going back to an earlier point i feel that's in historically that's where we've kind of we've almost stopped short we've got so far toward the answer and then we've kind of said ah, this is not my remit anymore over to you business um i think if we need if we want to continue having a right to have a voice at the big boy table we have to we have to make that that, that shift and sometimes that will mean almost second guessing what problems might arise as well uh, in, in in the future so there's an element of vision and vision is difficult for finance people i've discovered you know we we are not good at thinking revolutionary uh so so we we think incremental steps of evolution but actually we get almost 
you know, we crowbar ourselves into a into a, an answer where, and we can become quite wedded to that way of working and that way of thinking. Where sometimes it needs a bit of a disruption to just take a step back and and think that was entirely valid at that moment in time, entirely valid. But we're going here, you know, is that still going to be the best possible solution by the time we get there, or do we need to think future back? Yeah, that's a really interesting observation. And I don't, yeah, finance is not normally considered the revolutionary element of any business, right? It's the safe space where you put things that you need to be right. But it's a really interesting um, viewpoint, being comfortable and also being comfortable being wrong. Because that's a hard thing, isn't it, about predicting the future, you know, you are making a prediction, you've, you know, and whilst it might be based on numbers and facts, that you've got no guarantees, especially in this crazy, crazy world that we live in. So that that's sometimes a hard concept, I think, for a lot of finance people to get to grips with. I wonder if that goes back right back to that, the sort of genesis of what the profession is there, in that we, our roles, you know, balancing the books quite, quite, li- quite literally in a, in a sort of tier count sense. So, there is a correct answer to make a balance sheet work. Uh, so we are inherently goal-seeking toward perfection in, in, in that sense. But when you're not balancing the books, when you are making a call, when you're creating something, there isn't a correct answer. And that, that's, again, that's, that's okay. But it's a leap of, it is a leap of faith to some people and it's hard, it is hard to like. go. <laughs> But going back to your earlier point about that that transition between that technical account and that transactionally led person into that next role, whether that's leading people or whether that's strategic and business partnering, that is a hell of a shift. You know, you're almost flipping your entire purpose as an individual on its head to go from, like you say, perfectionist to um, the, you know, opportunist, as it were. And, and, and that's where I think, you know, I, th- I think sometimes we, um, we underestimate the amount of change that individuals and mindset change that individuals need to be able to do that. I, I, I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts as well about, because there's, there's a third step as well in, in that career path. And that's when you become number one for the first time. And I, I strongly believe, um, I had this debate with Seema, but um, there's a lot of, a lot of white space to go after. I strongly believe there is a huge task, uh, step change to when you take on that number one role for the first time. And I don't think there's anything out there that adequately prepares you for that moment in time where you go from having a boss who ultimately at the end of the day, the accountability probably is theirs. It's their ecosystem to it being yours. Um, you're not even having peers anymore to bounce ideas off or anything. Ultimately, the book stops with you. Um, that is an interesting uh, paradigm shift. And it, it, by the way, that can also be, feel quite lonely as well. Um, so that, yeah, I, 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 hear, I entirely hear you on the shift from executor to manager of people. You're going to make a lot of mistakes along the way. No one's a natural ball manager. But the next step, step change is also equally challenging, as I'm sure the one after that, if for those... For those that are interested, moving from CFO to CEO, that's probably an interesting change as well. Yeah, it's one I want to explore because there's, there's an interesting pattern of where where next, I think, for CFOs. And I did one about the shift board with the um, 
with uh, Fiona from Women on Boards. And it was not just about women shifting on, but actually how you get yourself in a position when you ain't ready for that shift. Um, but yeah, the whole shift to CEO is an interesting one. And uh, yeah, I need to, I keep, I keep meaning to get somebody in who's done that shift to then, you know, bring on that conversation. So there you go. Ideas for topics brought to the fore. So um, I, I literally feel like I could um, keep talking but very mindful that somebody is sitting at the end of their dog walk and ready for me to stop talking and for to go in and get on with their um, their day job. But um, so one last question for you, um, maybe a bit of a, an interesting one, but what are you doing to prepare your team for the shift in finance skills that you think you're going to need over the next five years? What preparations are you making internally at the team at Cantar Profiles to set yourself up for success? Uh, we're, we're trying, we're, we're kind of trying to address everything really. Um, we're actively looking at succession planning, uh, to make, make, make sure we're, um, we're in a good shape on that. And, and, and also just from a, a human level, like do, do, does everyone want to still be in the team in, in five years? And no is a perfectly valid answer. It's, it, that's one of, one of the things I, I love to explore with people is if you give me one amazing year, I will, you know, that's, that's not a problem. That's great. I'll happily help you find something that is even better for you if you want. Um, even better if you want to stay medium term. But yeah, so where we actively try and talk about the future as much as we, as, as much as we can very openly, very publicly. Uh, we try and create those opportunities, uh, for stretch and, and expansion wherever possible. And I am quite a hands off, um, manager as my team would probably occasionally say maybe be a bit more hands-on but uh, as a consequence we really try and push empowerment upon on the team um so uh, that's a sort of soft level we're tr- constantly trying to push the boundaries as much as we dare uh, we've got a few things we need to fix um in terms of our reporting package to better set ourselves up uh, we take we're not as fast as we could be um in terms of producing numbers and we're certainly not as live as we could be in terms of making informed decisions. Um, but right now, our entire business is going through an incredible transformation. We're, what's emerging at the other side is nothing like what it used to be. Um, so we're, we're trying to go along for the journey. We're trying to shape that as much as we humanly can. And the finance side will fall out of that. But first and foremost, we want to create that business. It's exciting time with Cantar Profiles, obviously. So um, brilliant. Well, thank you so much, James. I did say I'd let us go over a little bit because <laughs> we're, um, um, and I, as I predicted, it was a great conversation. So thank you so much um, for, for, for joining um, for joining me today. And, you know, if um, people want to learn a little bit more about Cantar um, and Cantar Profile specifically, which is the, the piece that you look after, you know, what's the best way and, you know, and uh, where can they find you? Uh, well, Cantar.com is uh, where you can find anything about the group. Um, we're uh, very vocal at divisional level and group level on, on LinkedIn. And that's probably where best to find me. I'm, I'm not on uh, any of the socials other than, other than LinkedIn. But look, thank you, thank you so much for inviting me. I've really enjoyed the conversation and um, all the best for the Digital Finance Awards. I hope you're a winner.
Yeah, same to you. It's going to be uh, an exciting night. So fingers crossed for yourself as well. So what, you know, um, what, what, what an awesome uh, award to be nominated for. So thank you so much, James. And I'm sure I say, um, I'm speaking on behalf of my listeners, but I say thank you very much for joining me today and the very best of luck with the, um, the Gen CFO Awards. Absolute pleasure. Take care.